Abraham believed because he prepared his heart by communing with God. Abraham was called by Jehoshaphat in 2 Corinthians, by Isaiah, and by James. Three times the perfect witness in scripture, Abraham was called the friend of God. Abraham had fellowship, he had friendship, he communed with God. The way we prepare our hearts to say yes to God's work in our life is we must begin by communing with God. So we're going to look at Abraham's life here. So we begin our story in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was a pagan. He was in a very complex society. And God said, you will now know me because I have plans for you. You are going to have offspring, and those offspring are going to become a nation, and that nation is going to bless all the other nations in the whole world. Now, Abraham somehow believes this, and he goes. He goes to this land that God's calling him to. The reason God calls Abraham is because the Tower of Babel had just been built and abandoned by everyone because they could not get along. And so the nations were birthed through the confusion of their tongues. They scatter everywhere. The world and creation is a mess. The flood didn't cure anything. Babel was man's attempt to fix everything, and it didn't fix anything. And so God says, can I finally have a word? All right, Abraham, here's my plan. I am through you going to make a people. And through this people, I'm going to bring the light of the world. Do you believe I can do this, Abraham? And he says, all right, let's do this. And he moves to what we call Canaan, the promised land, the place where Jesus will eventually be born. Then in chapter 15, Abraham, well, it's, it's been some time, and he's beginning to wonder, God, about that child. You've blessed me with all this stuff, this land and this stuff. Am I supposed to give it to a servant? And God says, no, 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 no. So he says, Abraham, I want you to step outside. I want you to look at the stars. And behold, the word of Adonai came to him. This man, this servant shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Now, back then, he would have seen a gazillion more stars than we see today. No light pollution, none of that mess. Just pure stars in the heavens. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. You, me. We are sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham. Because Galatians 3 tells us, oh, Galatians 2 tells us that by faith in Christ, we are made sons and daughters of Abraham. We are part of those stars. You are light in the darkness. And what is Abraham? So, Abraham, hey, I'm going to do this. Do you believe I can do this? Verse 6 of chapter 15. He believed Adonai, and Adonai counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham said yes. He keeps saying yes. But 10 years go by. You're going to have a son, Abraham. Of course, he was Abram at the moment, but you know his name changes and Abram, you're going to have a son. Look at the stars. You're going to have all those. It's like, all right. It's going to be my son. It's going to be your son. You're not going to have to adopt someone. It's going to be your son. So Abraham says, Sarah, we got a date. And so Abraham and Sarah, perhaps that very night, who knows, 
They try. And then she gets her period. Twelve months, ten years of waiting. That is 120 disappointed months. That is 120 attempts that come to no fruition. That is 120 times where you keep saying yes to God, and it seems like he's saying, well, I'm just not going to do it now. I changed my mind. How does one keep going with that? How does one keep saying yes to God? How does one prepare their heart to receive what God isn't bringing? Does Abraham say, I'm done with you, God. You didn't tell me it would be this hard. You didn't tell me it would be this long. Instead, Abraham continues to commune with God. Not to say he was perfect. Ten years go by, 120 miserable bad results. So Sarah has a great idea. Well, it seemed like a great idea. So in chapter 16, Sarah says, hey, Abram, I have a handmaiden. Why don't, did God say it has to come from my body? Well, he just said I'd have a son. All right, cool. So let's try Hagar. Hagar, my maidservant. Abraham tries. Boom. No, no apparent struggle. Baby born. Called him Ishmael. Sarah is seething. Absolutely seething. This isn't fair. Now she's resenting Hagar. Upstaging me. Gloating with her baby while I'm 120 times disappointed. And in her resentment, she casts Hagar out. But God says, Hagar, return with your son. Now there's this resentment. There's this tension. Ten years of disappointment. Perhaps there's another way they thought it didn't work out. So chapter 17, God comes back to Abraham and says, let's clarify my plan. Let's clarify it. So in 17 verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, so now 24 years have gone by. Ishmael is now 13 years old. And God finally comes to Abram and says, I bet you think it's pretty cool, huh? But hold on. I am still going to do what I said I will do. So Abraham was 99 years old, and Adonai appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. What a name to give to someone who is 24 years waiting and thinking, well, I guess, I mean, I guess we kind of found a a loophole and got the job done. And then God says, I am Almighty. I'm El Shaddai. There's nothing I can't do, Abram. So what does Abram do? He falls on his face. All right. So God says, now, um, why don't you guys jump down? We're getting very close to our chapter, aren't we? Jump down to 17, verse 15. God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall, call, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. Now Abram's like, wait a minute. I thought I had the son. What? By her? Abram's got all kinds of, uh, all kinds of. So look at verse 17. Abram fell on his face. This is the second time in this encounter. He falls on his face and laughed. (laughs) And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? nearly 100, 
Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He laughs. God, you're crazy. We, that, that ship has sailed a long time ago. We tried and tried and tried, and you are late, sir. He laughs. However, before we say, oh, we shouldn't have done that, we need to recognize that there is a faithfulness in Abraham still because he is someone who communes with God. Notice what he calls his wife. Shall Sarah bear a child at 90 years old? He didn't call her Sarai. He is affirming, I believe you can do this, so I will name her Sarah too, like you told me to. But I am not quite able to receive this unbelievable thing. So, Father, excuse me, my doubt isn't in you. I think you can do all things. My doubt is in how, what, I'm a hundred. So he laughs, perhaps because he's just, I didn't see that coming. So Abraham then says, oh, wait, I got an idea, 18. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Surely he's a good boy. And God says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Laughter, or Esau, or in America, Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant, and his offspring after him. Now, Ishmael, I have heard you. And then God says, I'm going to bless Ishmael too. But he's not the one that I came to you with when I said, do you believe I can do this? It was Isaac. And he will come next year. Okay. Now we come to chapter 18. And God visits with Abram. Chapter 18, verse 1. Remember, what we're seeing here is that he believes God can do this because he's prepared his heart by communing with God. Abram, the friend of God, and we can see why. He has conversations with the Almighty. This is communing with God. And what he is now beginning to learn, and we're going to see this more right here, he's going to learn that if we want to see conception in Sarah, there must be communion with God. So yes, Abraham's a friend of God, but now his communion is about to go to a deeper level. And the communion in, friends, in our lives, communion with God always precedes conception. When we want to receive what he's going to do in our lives, we want that to happen and to come into our lives and take place and to take root and to form a new life there, we must be in communion with God. Otherwise, you will never be ready. You know what you'll do? You will say like Abraham, Ishmael, that's God's answer in my life. And how many times, I fear, have we in our lives settled for Ishmael because we're not communing with God? We want, but that's good enough. And God's like, whoa, 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 I didn't get a chance to give you what I was saying. There's no conception because there's no communion. And now just to kind of stretch the analogy to the nth degree, literally to conceive you have to have very intimate communion with someone, right? And this is how God's, this is how his power works in our lives. We must have communion for there to be conception. So this is what God does. He brings it to Abraham, chapter 18, verse 1. Adonai appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. 
as he sat at the door in his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran. He's 100 years old. He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three say as a fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abram ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Then they said to him, verse 9, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Adonai said, so now we know for sure these three strangers, they are the presence of God. Adonai said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah's not there, but she was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. They're beyond disappointment. It's just not going to happen. That's, that's Sarah's thinking. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, <laughs> After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And Adonai said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for Adonai? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Communion prepares us for conception. We see this communion happening in this chapter beautifully. God comes to Abraham and Sarah as the three persons in one essence. Now, that's the Trinity. We will talk about the Trinity in the new year. But right now, suffice it to say that what, when we call God a Trinity, we mean that God is a communion. God himself is a relationship. God is not a static loner. God is a dynamic, pulsating, breathing energy and being and he has made everything to bring it into this love fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not three different people. It's one God. One God having his own communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as the theologians describe it, 
it means that the father is forever adoring the son and the son is forever adoring the father and the father is forever adoring the spirit and the spirit the father and the spirit the son and the son the spirit so that you have this unbroken cycle of love adoration and glory pulsating moving in the essence of god and this triune god comes to commune with abraham this is remarkable that we get to be invited to god's table with father son and spirit that he says there's room for you too we'll also talk about that in the new year how there's room for us with god i'm excited about the new year is anybody else this is like 2020 we're gonna i think we're all going to have anxiety attacks in years to come and somebody just mentions i have 2020 eyesight ah! 2020 <laughs> boy we sure don't have 2020 eyesight this year but whatever so so god comes as a communion to open himself to abraham and sarah tragically only abraham is outside so what happens is when we commune with God, communion with God, communion perceives God in our lives. So what we first want to see is that communion perceives God in our lives. Notice that Abraham is sitting in the tent and he sees these people just coming up, but he seems to recognize them right away. Because Abraham is a man who is in constant communion and friendship with God, he can see God coming in the most unlikely of forms. This time it isn't God saying, Boom! I am God Almighty. Walk before me blameless. And he falls to his face. It isn't that appearance this time. He's coming in three persons, three weary travelers on the road. It's not in some grand city. It's just out where Abraham has pitched his tent in the middle of Ai and Bethel. Just out there with sheep and everything crawling and batting around. And, 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 and Abraham sees these strangers and he recognizes, he perceives the presence of God coming to him. Brothers and sisters... God is always in our life and always working in our midst. Some people see it and recognize it. Other people don't. The difference is those who commune with God recognize God. Those who don't. Where's God in my life? And they're always playing the victim in life. All these things happen to me. Why am I just so messed up? Why do I have that bad luck? Maybe because you haven't perceived what God is doing in your life and you would see it totally differently. Abraham never plays the victim in this whole story. He's never like, well, God, you're just late and you're not coming and doing this. If only you would have called me when I was younger. I was really good looking back then. And he never says any of this. He's a man who communes with God, so he perceives God in all things. So notice in verse 2, when he sees these strangers, he lifts up his eyes and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw him, he ran. He ran. He knows what is happening. He, he doesn't hesitate to say, oh, are they good guys or bad guys? He sees them, and he, because his heart communes with God, he knows his natural place is right there with them. Right there. He runs. Uh, verse 6. Look at verse 6. You, you heard me emphasize this in the reading. Abraham went quickly, and then he said, quick. And then at the end of verse 7, uh, the young man prepared the goat quickly. He even ran in the midst of all that, too. Abraham knows what has come to him. He's not wasting time. So communion first perceives God in our lives. Communion second receives God in our lives. Now, let me, before we go on, let me just clarify. 
When I'm saying communion with God, I don't mean the bread and the wine or the juice that we receive. Not that communion. And in some ways, it's, it's too bad that Protestants call the Lord's Supper communion because it kind of isolates communing with God to this little moment. And I, forgive me, not a little moment, but I mean a sliver of time. Um, th- th- that's not, when we take communion at the end of the service, that's not, commun- communion's not limited to that. Now, it is high and holy communion because we are looking at Christ on the cross receiving his life for us. It is definitely high and holy communion, but we can commune with him at all times, all the time. Redundant, but there you go. So, there you go. My little opinion shouted out. Sometimes Eucharist might be a better word. I don't mean because we should be more Catholic. I just mean, you don't, Eucharist just means thanksgiving. That's what it means. It means thanks. They call the, the, the communion, they call it thanks. That's, it's, it's a Greek word, if I remember right. It's a Eucharist, it's thanks. But anyways, all that to say. So communion with God, fellowship, friendship with God. Yes, it perceives him in our lives, but then it receives. It receives him in our lives. So it's one thing to recognize that God's around and he's doing things. It's another thing to say, bring it on. I want you to press into my life and I want to press into your life. When we do, when in our communion with God we receive him, we discover that his presence enlarges our life. The infinite comes to the finite. The eternal comes to the temporal The one who made all things comes to the one who is made. And I cannot be the same if I receive this presence into my life. It reminds me of Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do abundantly, exceedingly above all we ask or think. And then Paul right before that prays, I pray that the saints would know the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of Christ. Friends, when we commune with God, we receive this enlarging presence in our lives. We realize that there is more to life than what we've been miserably suffering and struggling through. When we receive his communion in our lives, it causes us, as we see him larger, it causes us like Abraham to be able to say yes to what he wants to do because we're no longer focusing on ourselves, but in communion, we're focusing on him. And so we see that there's something bigger I can live into. What God wants to do in my life is not limited to my abilities. It's not limited to my mistakes. And it's not limited to me. Praise the Lord. I'm 5'7". That's very finite and limited. In fact, this is how the New Testament talks about it. You can listen or turn over to Romans chapter 4. And then we'll also look at Hebrews 11. Romans 4 talks about Abraham, and it says this. It's Hebrew, or Romans, Romans 4.18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. So in hope in God, he believed against his own withering, wilting hope. Right? That's what he's saying. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. What happened? 
is that when Abraham considered the age of his body and the barrenness of Sarah's body, it says that his faith didn't weaken because his eyes and his focus were not on his body and Sarah's body. They were elsewhere. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Where's his focus? Not on this. It's not on Sarah. It's on giving glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. Where's his conviction? God is able to do what he promised. I don't have to look at my inability. Then Hebrews 11, 11. This one's very short. Sarah gets a shout out here. Now, we're going to see Sarah's a pretty negative example in this text, but we know she gets it right in the end because Hebrews 11, 11 says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered Abraham manly and capable. No. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Communion receives God in our lives. And when we receive God in our lives, our lives are enlarged because they're no longer focusing on our smallness, but looking properly at God's ability to raise the dead. God's ability to call into being what was not. That is what communion does. That's why communion enables us to receive God into our lives. So, look, we need this communion with God because without it, without communion with God, we obviously don't get to see the way Abraham sees, but worse, we end up getting into individual achievement mode. Individual achievement mode. If I'm not communing with God and looking at him doing something and receiving his work in my life, then I'm going into, Brandon's got to make this happen. I've got to make this happen. I've got to achieve this. And, and what I end up doing is I'm resisting God. No, no, I got this. You, you called me, so I'll get it right. I'll be the hero here. I end up resisting God and reducing myself. I reduce myself. When I get into individual achievement mode, I actually become smaller than I was at the beginning. This might be painful to look at, but we got to look at it. Five instances in, these, in this story where we see Abraham and Sarah reducing themselves when they get into individual achievement mode. First, they get in, we get impatient. When we don't commune with God, we get impatient. Like in chapter 16, which you already heard, Sarah's like, hey, I got this fantastic idea. <laughs> Let's just get it done. He didn't technically say it was me, right? We get impatient. And then we create more aches. Abraham and Sarah were less than they were because they didn't wait on God. And when we don't wait on God, what we do is we say, all right, well, God, you had your chance. Give me the gauntlet. We've got a decision to make. Abraham and Sarah. You'll notice if you're you're there, Abraham, in chapter 16, verse 2, it says that Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai, Sarah. This is the problem. We get impatient. It shrinks us. It reduces us. It doesn't enlarge us like receiving communion with God does. Second, when we go into individual achievement mode, we're not only impatient, but we're resentful. We're resentful. You notice that Sarah, when Abraham went into Hagar, she conceived. And when Sarah saw that she had conceived, I'm sorry, when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt at her mistress. 
So Hagar's, <laughs> you're such a loser, Sarah. You can't even fulfill what you're supposed to do for your husband. That's the way they looked at the status of women back then. And Sarah goes, Abraham, do something about her. You do something about her. She's your mistress, isn't she? So there's this resentment that sees, seethes in Sarah. How long does it sit there? Every time she sees Ishmael, does she think, I'm a failure. Every time she sees Hagar, does she think, oh, I want to be her so bad. Does she regret the decision she made with her husband? We become resentful when we get into individual achievement mode. We also get, we get impatient, resentful. We also get complacent. Look at chapter 17, verse 18. You Just highlighting things we had already gone over in the story. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Abraham, I'm going to bring a child through Sarah. Oh, come now. We've tried that for 25 years. 24. Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Like we said earlier, how many times have we missed the laughter God wants to give us because we've settled for what was easier, what was something that we could comprehend? Oh, this won't change my life too much. We don't have to have a new, 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 newborn baby. We can just have Ishmael. Like, he's already kind of, he's a man now. He's 13. Kind of, we're going to send him off to school. Sarah and I can just like, ah, our evenings are ours again. So maybe Ishmael, you consider using Ishmael? Yeah, we, we get complacent. Friends, there's nothing worse than Christ coming to us and saying, do you believe I can do this? And then we say, oh, yeah, but, um... I'm really kind of content where I am. Let's not be complacent because we got into individual achievement. What are you saying, God? What I did with Hagar, this little Ishmael creation I made, are you saying that this isn't good enough? Are you saying that my accomplishment doesn't doesn't cut it? Yep. (laughs) Because that's not what I had in mind for you, Abraham. If you want to stay there, fine. But that's your achievement. That's what you're wanting to hold on to. But I made made him. Let, let, Let him live before you. He'll live before me, but I want to do this great work in your life. So that you don't go around saying, yeah, Sarah and I had this great idea, and it worked. Who gets the glory there? The great idea of Sarah. Abraham grew strong in faith when he gave glory to God, Romans said. God wants the glory in our lives And the way he does that is by being the power in our lives. Let us resist clinging to our individual achievements because they make us complacent, falling short of his best. So individual achievement also weakens us by uh, uh, making us avoidant of God, like Sarah. In chapter 18, where was she? Where was she? She wasn't communing with Abraham and with the three-in-one Godhead. She was in the tent, avoiding. She knows. She knows what she had been doing. She knows that she had made a mistake in the past. Oh, and by the way, is there resentment still there? If there is, that's one reason she doesn't want to commune with God. When we can't forgive people, when we hold things against people, and we look ill upon people, it's hard to commune with God. Because there's something you're hiding. And when you hide something, you hide yourself. Sarah is in the tent, She's in the tent because this is what happened. When you, we did it, my plan, we go into avoidance mode. And finally, individual achievement reduces us 
Um, in our intelligence, it reduces our intelligence. So 18.12, Sarah laughed to herself saying, am I, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Like, this is impossible. Now, intelligence. I'm using that word. Sometimes we think intelligence just means really smart. Intelligence actually refers to our ability to understand. Sarah can't understand God. She cannot understand him because she's still hung up on what she had achieved. She's shrunk. She's reduced. She's resisting God's work. So she cannot perceive. She cannot understand. She has no intelligence for the power of God. Not yet. We know that Sarah gets her act together, of course, but not yet. And then, of course, then God answers 14. Is anything too hard for Adonai? Sarah, you don't see. You don't see because you're not willing to receive my power in your life. Astonishing fact about that verse 14 is that in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, it's called the Septuagint. Um, because Greek became the popular language after Alexander the Great, the Jews translated all their scriptures into Greek. And a lot of the New Testament is citing the Greek translation. Do you know what it reads in the Greek? It says, is anything impossible for the Lord? Do you know what Gabriel says to Mary? Nothing is impossible for the Lord. And I looked this up. I looked at the Greek words themselves. And the only difference in the entire sentence structure is one's a question and one's a declaration. Exact same Greek words. What is Gabriel doing for Mary? We'll get to Mary on, on December 20th, so we'll look at that again. But what's, he, what's she doing, or he? What's Gabriel doing for Mary? Citing this story. Oh, Mary. Are you going to do what Sarah did, or are you going to? Mary was someone who was in communion with God. That's how Mary perceives what's going on the minute it happens, and that's how she receives it, and that's how she says yes. Interesting fact there. So this is why we need communion, because communion perceives the work, perceives uh, God in our lives, and communion with God receives God in our lives. And if we don't have communion, then we slip into the self-reducing, God-resisting, individual achievement mode. And we get impatient, we, we get resentful, we get complacent, we avoid God, and our intelligence is numbed. God can't do it. Well, you're thinking like a human, and not like a supernaturalized human, which is what Christians should be. All right, so we see the importance of communing with God. How do we commune with God? Well, there are myriads of ways we can commune with God. Um, but let's, let's stick to some ways we see here in this story. Some ways we see Abraham is a communer, as a friend of God. So I want to give you five, five ways we can ensure ongoing communion with God. I know you're here. You're here on a Sunday night in the dark with the pandemic surging and raging. You're here. And by the way, online audience, I recognize you too. You're here too. A lot of people right now staying home because of the spike recently. Um, So you're online right now. You're in the same boat as the people here. You're here. It means you know how to commune with God. But do you know how to do it ongoing, unbroken, continuous 
fellowship and friendship and communion. That's what we want. How does Abraham sustain this communion? How does he live this life of communion where he can perceive God is there in his life and receive God's work in his life? First, so five ways we can do this. First, keep God's commandments. Keep God's commandments. This is not because if I, if I break his commandments, then God's like, well, then I won't come to you if you won't come to me. It's not petty like that. Breaking God's commandments means I'm choosing the path that goes away from God. I cannot commune with God if I'm going the other direction he's going. That's why God gives us commandments. He says, you want to be with me? Here's the road. Here are the steps. Here's the key to the door. So I must keep God's commandments if I want to be in ongoing, persistent, continual communion with him. Now, as an interesting exercise, look at Lot in chapter 19. You might remember that Lot is Abraham's nephew who comes with him. They have to divide because their shepherds weren't getting along with each other. Lot moves to the city of Sodom. Now, if you notice in uh, chapter 19, verse 1, this happens. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. What's weird about that? The two angels, three came to Abraham. Two, come to Lot. Now, you could probably read in all kinds of ways into this and say, oh, Lot believes in God and has Christ, but he doesn't have the spirit. I, I don't, you know, you're probably reading into it at that point. But the point is, Lot doesn't get the full fellowship. He's not in full communion. There are things in Lot's life, which we'll touch on here in a minute, uh, that he just, he isn't in the same communion that Abraham is in. Jesus said this, John 14, John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So how do we commune with God? We keep his commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, if you really want to get all into this... um, up the, the whole thing that starts this say the speech of Jesus is, is he's saying, um, I will ask the Father and give to you the Spirit. And now Jesus is telling them a few verses later, if you love me, you'll keep my words. Me and my Father, we will come to you. We will come to you. We will make our home with you. Abraham is in his tent. They come to him. They make their home with him. Abraham is someone who keeps God's commandments. But Lot, on the other hand, uh, look what he does in chapter 19, verse 2. He said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. A lot like Abraham. Hey, okay, come, come. He doesn't seem as urgent. He doesn't seem to recognize him, but he is showing hospitality. So come to my house, wash your feet. Then you may rise up and go on your way. But they said, no. Jesus said, if you keep my words, we will come and make our home with you. Lot apparently isn't keeping all of God's commandments because they say at first, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But Lot persists and they eventually go in. Interesting the difference. Abraham comes and bows down and says, please let me meet your needs. And then they say, sure, do as you say. Lot does the same thing and they say no. 
we want ongoing unbroken communion, we must keep God's commands. Um, then to show you Abraham 17 verse 23, um, God had told Abraham, you must circumcise all your offspring as evidence that I will bring this promise to you. And we see that Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money. Every male among the men of Abraham's house, he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. And the next verse, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. Okay, so I would say, God, yep, uh, I hear your commands. I will make sure everybody's circumcised. I'm kind of the patriarch here and... uh, I'm 99. I'm like, I've got that opt-out clause, right? But Abraham is someone who communes with God. He keeps all his commands. I think that's pretty radical right there. He just laughed. God, can you really do this? And he's like, okay, you say I'll, circ- I'll circumcise him. The faith of Abraham in the myth of I don't get how God will do this is remarkable. That's communion. And he keeps all of God's commands. Second, to ensure unbroken communion circumcise your self-reliance circumcise your self-reliance 1724 abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin so we saw already saw that he obeyed god's commands and circumcised himself but here abraham is circumcising more than just the part of his body He's circumcising, I would believe, symbolically and in faith. He's, he's obeying God and doing what he says because he recognizes with this very instrument I'm about to circumcise, I try to circumvent God's power in my life. I came up with this clever plan, and me and Hagar did that. And what he's doing is he's circumcising the self-reliance, this wicked and evil and unbelieving part of us that says, oh, God can work in your life, but you really better make sure that you do this, and then we'll say, God, bless what I did. Abraham wants to circumcise that, cut that off. There's no room for that. I want what God's plan is, holy and fully. Thank you, Lord, that he did. Because we are... We are the nations that were brought in through Abraham's obedience. Brothers and sisters, Paul in Galatians and the church in the New Testament talks about circumcision. That yes, God had commanded that. But what's important now is that people who are coming in through the Abrahamic faith, through his faith, uh, coming to Christ, they don't need to circumcise their bodies. They need to circumcise their self-reliance. And that's where Galatians says we're saved not by circumcision, but by faith in Christ. Not my reliance, not my accomplishment. (laughs) I did this snip snip in Christ and his salvation. So unbroken communion, we keep God's commands. We circumcise our self-reliance. Third, dwell in tents of humility. Dwell in tents of humility, not in the gates of worldly glory. Chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent. You know this. Abraham was a tent dweller. But Lot, chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to to Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The gate was the place of prominence in cities back then. Lot sitting there meant he was very, very prestigious, very important. But Abraham, from the very beginning, when God brought him to the promised land, 
Abraham was living in tents. In fact, Abraham never really had a home. First of all, you notice in chapter 18, it said he's sitting in his tent um, at the oaks of Mamre. These are oaks that belong to Mamre. These are not even Abraham's oaks. He's a visitor on the land God promised to give to him. And Hebrew says that these all died not receiving what they were promised. Abraham is a traveler. He lives in a tent because he recognizes that I am not going to invest all of my love and desire in this stuff, in this world. I'm going to invest it in communion with God. That's where my desire goes, and that's where I envelope it. So humility is what it takes. Um, He, in chapter 13, verse 3, he journeyed, and then it says he put his tent down between Bethel and Ai. These are two towns. He didn't go to one of these small towns. He, in between. Abraham's a tweener. <laughs> so are we. We are between heaven and earth. We haven't quite yet inherited what is to come, but we are also not investing all of our glory in stuff, in this planet. We are tweeners. And this is what Hebrews tells us. It tells us a very similar thing, that Abraham, it's Hebrews 11, verse 9. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Why does Abraham dwell in tents? Hebrews tells us in this, in this sermon, uh, Hebrews is believed to be a sermon of the early church, um, the, the preacher there tells us Abraham lived in a tent because he refused to make his home in one of the cities of the world because he was waiting for a different city. It takes humility, friends, because we have this part of us that wants to be lot. We want to be at the gate. We want to be recognized. We want people to come and pay us respect and say, I need your advice or I want you to know. We want to be there in the place of prominence. But Abraham chooses to live in between where he's hardly recognized, where he's in this like little, it's almost like a gas station stop from city to city. It's probably why he's there trying to hospitality to all the guests. Someone's here. <laughs> like cars route 66 a little small town they're all excited as a visitor anyways dwelling in tents of humility so it's finding our prestige in the glory of god's kingdom not in the glory of sodom number four to ensure unbroken communion we must walk in the light of open humility walk in the light of open humility and we just read part of our prayers first john 1 5 to 10 god is light in him is no darkness at all but if we have fellowship with him while we're in darkness we're lying and the, the verse essentially in layman's terms is saying you're in darkness when you are not open and honest about your mistakes with god you're in the light when you're an open book before him and that's why we take time every sunday to pray lord examine me And have mercy on my sins because we don't want to hide. Sarah, we've already said Sarah's hiding in the tent. But Abraham is walking in the light of open honesty. Notice, notice, Sarah even has an opportunity in chapter 18, verse 15. She gets called out. Why did she laugh? But in in eight, so she could have said, uh, I'm so sorry, come out of the tent, come open and honest before God. I'm so sorry, but I just, I'm having a hard time understanding how, you know, this can do that. 
Instead, it says, she denied it, saying, I did not laugh, because she was afraid. But God said, no, you did laugh. You can't fool. There's nothing I can tell God that he didn't already know. There's plenty I can hide from him, though, that he already knows. And here's the thing. She was afraid. Do you know what Adam and Eve said when they were hiding? God's like, where are you? And then they, they come out, and they're all covered up, and like, oh, everything's fine. We were, we, we were just hiding because we were afraid, because we're naked. They were afraid, like Sarah, afraid. So they're hiding. Who told you you're naked? Oh, well, funny thing, this thing kind of happened. They never get around to saying, okay, okay, we rebelled against you. We are sorry. They lose communion with God because they're not willing to walk in the light of open honesty. Sarah misses this one-of-a-kind experience to sit down with the triune God because she is hiding and not willing to walk in open honesty. We must be okay with confessing sin before God, with saying, I am harboring resentment, but please take that out of my life. I have been relying on my achievements. Lord, please make me look at your power instead. We must walk in this openness with him. That's what communion is. Or else we hide and we make God a liar. That's what John says in his letter. We make God a liar when we say, no, I'm not a sinner. I make, I've made it a habit to confess my sins every day. Not because I'm going to hell if I don't, but because I want communion with God. So five ways to ensure our ongoing, unbroken communion. Keep God's commands. Circumcise your self-reliance. Dwell in the tents of humility. Walk in the light of open honesty. And finally, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who's been here for a while, but in the, in the theme of the Psalms, Practice prayer and praise habitually. Practice prayer and praise habitually. The Psalms are a book of communion with God. Because God spoke in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He spoke through five books. The Psalms are five books of God's people speaking back. The Psalms are communion. The Psalms teach us how to speak with God, how to spend time with God, how to hear God, because the Psalms are the language of intimacy with God. That's what they are. And he who spends time in the Psalms, she who learns the language of prayer and praise, is practicing communion with God. And if we practice this habitually, we will not fail to notice where God is at work in our lives Abraham did this habitually. In chapter 12, the first thing he does when he gets in the promised land, 12 verse 8 says he built an altar to Adonai. First thing he does is, well, I'm going to build my three-story house right there. Sarah can have the wing over there and a knitting place. And, oh, this little place will be good for gardening. And First thing he does is he builds an altar. This is a place of prayer and praise to the God who gave him this land. Then we see he falls on his face three times, twice in chapter 17 and once in chapter 18. He falls on his face before, before God. Abraham doesn't sit there and go, wow, it's God. Oh, right. Uh, by, uh, oh, I should fall on my face. Abraham habitually knows what to do in the presence of God. And finally, we see Abraham's habitual practice of prayer and praise in the part after our story when God says, I'm going to go check out Sodom and see if it's really as bad as I hear. And if it is, I'm going to destroy the place. What does Abraham do? Whoa, 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 whoa. God, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I know somebody there. 
Abraham intercedes, intercessory prayer with God on behalf of the Sodomites. But furthermore, I want to show you two things here. In 18 verse 2, it says that he lifted up his eyes and looked. Now, you could imagine that this just means he's playing with his Game Boy or texting or Game Boy. I don't know why I said that. It's my childhood. Um, Whatever, and he lifts his eyes. Oh, there they are. Or you say, oh, he's praying. He lifts his eyes. Oh, there they are. You could say all kinds of things about that. But I don't think we're guessing here when we say that Abraham's in prayer. Because the exact same Hebrew word here that says he lifted up his eyes is the exact same Hebrew word in verse 24 when Abraham's interceding. He says to God, verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not lift it up? For the sake of the 50. Spare in my translation. But it's the same Hebrew as he lifted up his eyes. What's happening here? We got the same word used when he's talking to God. And when he's sitting and lifting up his eyes and seeing God. It seems like Abraham is in a state of continual prayer. Furthermore, it's the same Hebrew word as our last week's passage. Psalm 25, chapter chapter 25, verse 1. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Abraham knows how to lift up his soul to God. He is practicing habitual prayer and praise. So he's in this unbroken, continuous communion with God. Do you believe I can do this? Christ asks. I believe Help my unbelief. Then he says to us, then join me in unbroken communion and I will prepare your heart to receive what's to come. Father, help our unbelief. In place of the mocking laughter of Sarah, give us the psalms and the praises and the praises.